This is a Scream Queen production. So dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Did you miss me? As it turns out, I took my little spring break at exactly the right time because the plague finally caught up with me and I spent about half of my time off with fucking COVID, but we'll talk about that later. Even now, though, I'm really still dealing with some brain fog issues, which is why this episode is coming to you like a week and a half later than it was supposed to. So please be kind because if you guys thought that I had a hard time using the right words before, oh man, (laughs) it's gotten so much worse, so much worse. So I'm going to do my best here. We're here. We're together. Let's get into it. Summer is in full swing Temps are supposed to get close to like 100 here in Michigan this week, which is so obscene I can barely handle it. And what honestly says summertime more than a good, classic, scary movie? What's your favorite scary movie? It should come as a surprise to no one that my favorite scary movie is Scream, which is how I ended up getting COVID actually. Um, But again, we'll talk about that later. There were lots of good teenage slasher flicks that came out in like the late 90s, early 2000s during Scream's heyday. One of those movies was Jeepers Creepers, starring a little baby Justin Long and Gina Phillips as siblings Derry and Trish, who are driving home from college for spring break down a desolate country road when things take a wild turn, changing their lives forever. I know you know this because we've all seen Jeepers Creepers, right? But did you know that the movie was inspired by a real-life crime that took place right here in little old Michigan? Now, we all know that in the movie, the big bad is of supernatural persuasion. So how can that be based on a true story, right? It's all about that opening scene. A man and a woman driving down a desolate country road on a beautiful spring day, only to find themselves suddenly being tailgated wildly, we're talking bumper to bumper, by a madman in a big old rusty van. They manage to pull over enough to get him to pass by them, but then they encounter him again a bit further down the road. As they approach an old abandoned building, as one often does while driving through the country, they see this man again out of his van, behind the building, dragging a bloody sheet. He sees that they've seen him, so he gets back in the van and he starts tailgating them again, trying to run them off the road. And it's all very intense and very scary and very real. Almost frame for frame, that exact scenario played out on April 15th, 1990, for Ray and Marie Thornton as they were driving the back roads on Easter Sunday near the quaint little town of Coldwater, Michigan. 
Before we get down to the nitty gritty, though, I do <laughs> nitty gritty. I do want to thank today's sponsor. Care of is a subscription service that ships high quality personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Start your care of journey by taking a short, in depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals, and get personalized recommendations on the best routine for you. No guesswork involved. The website is easy to use. The questions are easy to answer. If I can get through the quiz quickly and easily, anybody can. Trust me. Each shipment comes with a customized booklet showing you exactly what's in your individual daily packets and why those specific supplements were recommended for you and your health goals. Each shipment comes in this cute little dispensable box. You just set it on the counter, pop the top, and you're good to go. Consume the contents of one packet daily. No measuring out or fiddling with pill dividers or trying to remember if you took everything. It's just all right there in a convenient packet. Each packet has your name printed on it, so if multiple people in your household are living the care of lifestyle, you'll never get your supplements mixed up. My favorite part, though, is the different little inspirational quotes on each daily pack. I'm all about small details, and it's just a nice little touch, a little little pick-me-up each morning. And right now, SoDead listeners can save 50% on their first order by visiting TakeCareOf.com and entering code SoDead50. That's TakeCareOf.com, promo code SoDead50 to save 50% on your first order from Care Of. Be sure to tell them I sent you. Okay, back to Coldwater. Coldwater is a rural town of about 10,000 near the Michigan-Indiana border, about 70 miles south of Lansing. It's home to a strawberry fest in the summer, an apple fest in the fall, and an ice fest in the winter. It's home to the Tibbetts Opera House, the second oldest theater in Michigan, and was once home to the Coldwater State Public School, which was an orphanage where horrible, horrible things took place. But that is not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about a different school, the 1908 District Schoolhouse Number 3. <laughs> I wish it had a cooler name than that, but it is what it is. Like, that is printed in cement on the front of the building, so it's not changing. Now, this building isn't actually in Coldwater. It's in the nearby suburb of Bronson at the corner of Southern and Snow Prairie Roads. Can a town of 10,000 people have suburbs? I don't know. If Coldwater's small, Bronson is baby-sized. It's about 3,000 residents, and it is located roughly 10 miles south of Coldwater, so even closer to that Michigan-Indiana border. I wasn't able to find a ton of history on the schoolhouse, but I would assume based on its name that it was built in 1908 and was the third schoolhouse built in the district. <laughs> Just a guess there. Long after the school bell stopped ringing, that building still stood. Broken windows, overgrown brush. For a long time, it served as a barn for sheep, which, as you can imagine, absolutely gutted whatever was left of the interior. And then it was just abandoned. Standing there, all alone and broken, looking ominous as hell, evoking rumors of ghosts and monsters long before Hollywood brought them to town. April 15th, 1990 was a Sunday. 
Easter Sunday, as previously stated. And according to the online weather almanac I consulted, it was a pretty nice day. It was a high of 57 and sunny, which if you live in Michigan, you know that that's pretty good for mid-April because really anything goes that time of year. You could get a sunburn doing your Easter egg hunt, or you could have to have it indoors because there's six inches of snow on the ground. It can really go either way. Roy and Marie Thornton lived in Eckhart, Indiana, where Roy was a machine shop operator and Marie was a nurse's aide. Between the kids and work, the Thorntons didn't really get a lot of alone time, so on Sundays they liked to leave the kids at home and go for drives in the country, just the two of them. So after the Easter morning festivities, they hopped into the family car and headed north out of Indiana into southern Michigan, drove for a bit, and then back again. They were on Snow Prairie Road headed home, which Snow Prairie crosses the state line. They were going slow, about 20 to 30 miles an hour, so they could take in the scenery and just talk. The speed limit on those desolate country roads is usually, you know, like 55, 60 miles per hour, but there were no other cars on the road, so it wasn't a huge deal that they were going so slow. As they passed through Bronson, that small town just outside the still small but slightly bigger town of Coldwater, a maroon and cream-striped passenger van approached from behind, and it was coming in hot. Was it, though? Because, I mean, the Thorntons were really just way too cold. They were going, like, half the speed limit. So, of course, an approaching vehicle, even one going the speed limit, is going to seem like it's flying to them. So this van gets right up on their bumper. Um, Roy speeds up, but the van does not let up at all. Uh, And then the van swerves into the oncoming lane to pass them, even though they're on a hill at this point and visibility was limited. When the van cut back over in front of them, Marie took note of the license plate, the letters GZ followed by a series of numbers, and she made a joke. GZ. Geez, he must be in a hurry. LOL. Best joke I've ever heard. The Thorntons were a bit rattled, but they continued on as the van disappeared from sight, right? Like, at this point, it's still kind of on them. They were going way too fucking slow on this road, so it's not out of the question that somebody would run up on them, swerve around them, pass them, and take off. Like, that's not odd behavior when you're going 20 instead of 60. They drove another mile or two south, and then as they approached that old abandoned schoolhouse on the corner of Snow Prairie and Southern, Marie noticed a man in the field out back. Remember, they were going super fucking slow, so she was able to get a good look. There was a tall white guy, which we gotta always watch out for those, with dark hair dragging a sheet stained red. Marie, a nurse's aide accustomed to dealing with bodily fluids on a daily basis, was sure it was blood, and a lot of it. But Roy, who was a man, was convinced it was just paint. As they watched this man, they noticed him watching them. Like, eye contact was made. So he knew that they saw him, and they knew that he knew that they saw him. And then they saw something else. That same fucking van. The man behind the school holding the bloody sheet was the same man who just nearly run them off the road. The Thorntons kept driving, albeit slowly, and while Marie insisted that the man was dragging a bloody sheet, Roy just didn't think that made any sense. The man in the van had just passed them. He knew they were coming down the road. 
if he were trying to dispose of, like, evidence, a bloody sheet, wouldn't he wait for them to pass by? He knew they were coming. And I mean, that's a valid point, but still, if someone who works in the medical field tells you that something is blood, then it's blood. So they continue to kind of argue. I don't know if argue is the right word. They debate back and forth what's going on as they head down Snow Prairie Road back toward home. And then all of a sudden, the van is behind them again on their bumper, bearing down on them, but this time he doesn't pass them. He's trying to intimidate them, possibly trying to run them off the road. And then after a few very scary seconds, the van swerved around them again and took off. But this time, instead of just mentally noting the GZ portion of his license plate, Marie Thornton wrote down the entire license plate number so that they could call it into the police when they got home. Because remember, no cell phones back then, so they didn't have a way to contact anyone as this was all going on, as we would today. So now the Thorntons are really troubled. They know that something nefarious is afoot. They're in the middle of nowhere, no other witnesses, no phones, nothing but them, a possibly bloody sheet, and a madman in a van. They keep driving toward home, and as they reach an intersection at the Michigan-Indiana border, they see the van again. Only this time the driver doesn't see them. He's too busy changing his Michigan license plate to an Illinois license plate. The passenger door of the van is open for some reason, and Marie sees that it is splattered with blood, like a lot, a lot of blood. And this time, when she tells her husband there's blood, he believes her. The Thornton's next move was a bold, if not pretty fucking stupid one. They turned around and they drove back to the schoolhouse to look for the bloody sheet. When they found it, they realized that, yes, of course it was covered in blood, but it also had bone and tissue fragments stuck to it. So at this point, they freaked out and also realized that they had made a tactical era. Era? No. I wrote area. I said era. And I meant error. Okay. The van man was clearly a murderer. He was still in the immediate vicinity, and he knew that they had seen him. Molly, you in danger, girl. So they took off, they found the nearest house, and they had the owners call 911. They waited at the house for a state trooper who then followed them to the schoolhouse. And when he saw the bloody sheet, he radioed for backup. Now remember, Marie and Roy had not only a bloody sheet, a description of the man, and a description of his van, but his whole ass license plate number to give the police as well. So as soon as police ran this license plate, they knew they had a problem because they were already looking for the man who owned it. Dennis Henry DePew was born on June 13, 1943, in Sturgis, Michigan, a small town even closer to the Michigan-Indiana border than Coldwater is. He grew up in Burr Oak, a little village of less than a 1,000 people, right in that same area. He went to Michigan State University, where he got a bachelor's degree in business education. He spent a few years teaching business education out in Portland and Los Angeles, and then he settled in Coldwater right around 1970. About that same time, he got a job working as a property tax specialist for the Michigan Department of Treasury, and he got married. 
Marilyn Lee McClanahan was two and a half years Dennis's senior. She was born January 24th, 1941 in Detroit, and she moved to Coldwater in her 20s for work. She was a guidance counselor at Coldwater High School. She and Dennis welcomed their first child, a daughter they named Jennifer, in 1972. Julie came a couple years later, and their youngest child, a son they named Scott, was born on Christmas Day, 1979. The DePews were viewed by those who knew them as a church-going, all-American family. Nice house, good jobs, well-behaved kids. But Dennis and Marilyn, as individuals, were very different people. Dennis was a loner who became more and more withdrawn over the years, whereas Marilyn was outgoing and social. Her students and coworkers loved her. She wanted to, you know, be involved in the community, and Dennis didn't really like that. He wanted her at home with him. He was controlling, kind of the whole I'm the man of the house mentality, but as the kids got older, Marilyn really wanted to do her own thing, and Dennis was not a fan. As one of the Depew children later explained, it wasn't really that her parents fought. They just didn't talk. They kind of existed in the same space, but that was about it. Eventually, Marilyn grew tired of her big old grumpy stick-in-the-mud husband, and on April 14th, 1989, after going on 18 years of marriage, she filed for divorce. Dennis was not down with this plan at all. He wanted to maintain the status quo, but like he made no attempts to change either. So the divorce moved forward and was finalized on January 19th, 1990. Marilyn was awarded the house and full custody of all three kids, with Dennis getting visitation every other weekend. That was tricky, though, because the kids weren't babies at this point. Jennifer was a senior in high school, so Julie would have been like a sophomore, maybe a junior, and Scott was 10. So they had lives and friends, and they didn't want to spend every other weekend at their boring dad's new place. One thing that was like a little bit odd to me In the divorce, Dennis was granted use of the guest house on the family home's property. So he moved out of the house, but he still got the guest house, and he used that as an office. And he used that as his excuse to always hang around. He just kind of came and went as he pleased. Marilyn got all the locks changed, but she would still come home from work some days and just find him sitting on the couch watching TV like he owned the place. He continued to be bitter about the divorce, and he even began confiding in coworkers that he wanted to kill his family and himself. What did his coworkers do with that information? abso fucking nothing. And that brings us back to April 15th, 1990, one year and one day after Marilyn Depew filed for divorce. It was Easter Sunday, as discussed many times now, and 46-year-old Dennis Depew was due to pick up the kids for his court-ordered visitation at noon. His middle child, Julie, had already made it known that she had no intention of going with him that day. She just wasn't feeling it. And then when he got to the house, which was located at 459 Don's Drive in Coldwater, Scott decided that he wasn't going to go either. 
An argument ensued as Dennis tried to force Scott to leave with him, and Marilyn stood up to her big oaf of an ex-husband. Dennis was over six feet tall and 200 pounds. Marilyn was petite, so big, big size discrepancy there. And the two of them began to fight as their three distraught children looked on. Dennis shoved Marilyn, punched her, and then pushed her down the basement stairs. She was injured, badly. She wasn't unconscious, but she was dazed and incoherent. Uh, The Depew children were hysterical as Dennis carried Marilyn back up the stairs and dragged her toward the front door. They followed their father outside, crying as he loaded Marilyn into the passenger side of his van, and he told them that he was going to take her to the hospital. He promised them he was going to take her to the emergency room, get her fixed up, and that they'd be back in a little while. But when four hours passed and the kids hadn't heard from their dad, one of the girls called 911. She told the operator that her dad physically assaulted her mom, threw her down the stairs, and then took her to the hospital and never came back. So police officers went to the hospital and they learned that neither Mr. or Mrs. DePue had been there and they began a large-scale search for them with Marilyn considered endangered missing. So, police are already looking for the Depews and their van when Ray and Marie Thornton call 911 with their strange tale of the scary man in the van and the bloody sheet. And of course, once officers saw the sheet and saw that it had brain matter on it, they assumed the worst. The following day, on April 16th, their fears were confirmed when an employee of the Branch County Road Commission found Marilyn's body in a ditch on a secluded road located about halfway between the Depew home and the schoolhouse where the Thorntons had encountered Dennis Depew. Marilyn had been shot once in the back of the head. But where was Dennis? While the events of April 15th seemed spontaneous, there was strong evidence that Marilyn's murder was premeditated. Not only had Dennis been confiding in coworkers that he just wanted to end it all, but he'd withdrawn several thousand dollars from his bank account, he'd recently purchased a gun, and he had at least one extra license plate in his van just ready to change out with his registered license plate to avoid detection. So while things might not have happened the way that he planned to do them, that end result was always the intention. In fact, investigators believed that had the Thorntons not inadvertently wound up in the middle of this murder scene, Dennis was planning to go back to the house and kill the children after he dumped Marilyn's body. They were all witnesses to what had happened in that house. So the kids were placed in protective custody and the hunt for Dennis DePew was on. As he was last spotted on the Michigan-Indiana border changing his license plate to an Illinois plate, it was a pretty safe bet that he'd fled the state. A few weeks after he murdered his wife and disappeared, Dennis started sending strange letters to Marilyn's co-workers, friends, family members, then to newspapers, the judge that oversaw his divorce, law enforcement officials— 5,000-word rambling manifestos basically explaining what had happened to Marilyn was all her own fault. One chilling line in almost every letter was, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a lie for a lie, a life for a life. 17 letters in all were sent, with postmarks from all over the country, but still they couldn't pin Dennis DePew down. 
The case was starting to go cold, so law enforcement officials took the unorthodox step of reaching out to a big national television show for help. And what was bigger in the early 90s than Unsolved Mysteries? So for the first, but definitely not the last time, Hollywood descended upon the sleepy farming town of Coldwater. They recreated the horrific confrontation between Dennis DePew and the Thorntons right at the abandoned schoolhouse where it all happened. A stranger in a speeding car, a bloody sheet, a deadly chase down a desolate country road. Even the game of making words out of license plates, which was something that Thorntons often did when they were out on their weekly drives, uh, it was it was like the plot of a scary movie. And years later, it became one when Jeepers Creepers was released in 2001. The rusty speeding vehicle with a monster behind the wheel, the license plate game. In real life, it was, geez, he must be in a hurry. In the movie, the murder van had a license plate that said, beating you. I want to know how a demon gets a personalized license plate, but that's just me. The abandoned building, the bloody sheet, the deadly chase. From there, the movie and the real-life story were vastly different, obviously. But I dare say that Dennis DePew was much scarier than the monster in the movie and honestly a lot fucking uglier. Have you, have you seen photos of this man? He looks like, looked like a real-life Herman Munster, which that's not fair to Herman Munster even, honestly. I don't know. He was scary looking. Like, had I encountered him in my day-to-day, I would have been terrified. As a child, as a grown woman, he would have scared me. Anyway, point is, Unsolved Mysteries was the key. The key to all of this. It was the inspiration for the movie, of course, but it also brought long overdue closure to the family of Marilyn DePew, and very, very quickly— On March 21st, 1991, nearly a year after Marilyn's murder, a segment about her case aired on Unsolved Mysteries. In Grapevine, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, a man by the name of Hank Queen sat down to watch the broadcast, unaware that it would change his life forever. Hank's live-in girlfriend, Linda Blizzard, was out running errands when the show started. Mm, I don't like that live-in girlfriend. He lived with her. It was her house. He lived with her. She didn't move in with him. He moved in with her. Semantics. Anyway, if you remember the OG Unsolved Mysteries with the one and only Robert Stack, you know that each episode featured multiple stories. And the story about the Depews didn't start until about halfway through the episode. Linda returned home mid-broadcast, and she found Hank frantic. He stood in the doorway to the living room, blocking her view of the TV, and he told her that he'd just gotten a call, that his mother was very ill. He had to leave right then, late at night, to go to her. Linda offered to help him pack, but as she tried to pass him into the living room, he stopped her. He redirected her to the kitchen, and he asked her to make him some sandwiches for the road. She did, and by the time she was done, Hank was shuffling her out the door with him. His van was in the driveway, which she thought was weird because he always kept it in the garage with the garage door closed. Hank kissed and hugged Linda goodbye, and then he was gone. She later said that as she watched him drive off, she knew that she would never see him again. She'd always felt that something was off about Hank, yet she let him move in with her. But okay. So a little while after Hank left, a flurry of worried friends began calling Linda's house and pounding on her front door. 
Are you okay? Where's Hank? You're in danger. He's not who he says he is. His name is Dennis DePew. He killed his wife, and they just aired a story about him on Unsolved Mysteries, which she realized as all of this began unfolding, the reason that he had had her make sandwiches and kept her busy in the kitchen was so that she wouldn't see it because he is packing and trying to get out of the house as his story is still being shown on Unsolved Mysteries, like real time. Just imagine. Imagine not only getting news like that, but getting the news as the end credits for Unsolved Mysteries are scrolling by on your TV screen in the living room that the man was just in moments earlier that they are looking for. Linda was shocked, of course, but she immediately picked up the phone and called the Unsolved Mysteries hotline. She was able to not only give them Dennis DePew's alias and most recent location, but the license plate number from his van because he was using another fake plate by this point. She had written it down once due to the whole not trusting him thing. A few hours later, in the great state of Louisiana, a trooper clocked a rickety old van speeding down the highway. He began to follow the van as he ran the plates and certainly was not expecting them to come back as belonging to one of the most wanted men in the country. He began pursuing Dennis DePew, who gunned it, and soon other officers joined. He crossed the state line into Mississippi, and for 15 miles, officers from multiple agencies chased him. He blew through two roadblocks before officers shot out his back tires, disabling his vehicle, and he was quickly surrounded. As officers approached, Dennis fired two shots through his windshield and one out his open driver's side window. So police responded by unleashing a hail of gunfire upon his big ugly van. And they didn't hit him a single time. The bullet that killed Dennis DePew came from his own gun, the same one he'd used to kill his wife Marilyn a year earlier. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a lie for a lie, a life for a life. I mean, I don't know for certain, but I feel like that's got to be the quickest Unsolved Mysteries has ever brought resolution to a case. Within hours, hours of his wanted broadcast, Dennis DePew was surrounded by police and dead. So that was, that was some swift Robert Stack justice right there. And that is the story of the real-life case that inspired the movie Jeepers Creepers. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My sources for today were Man with a Van, which is a show on the ID channel. This was Season 1, Episode 6. That Unsolved Mysteries episode from 1991, Season 3, Episode 20. Newspapers.com, bunch of articles there. Find a Grave, and then Wikipedia, as always, for those like city stats and demographics and whatnot. So I'm going to put the link to the Unsolved Mysteries episode on the So Dead so page for this episode. Um, it's not like bootleg or anything. There is an official Unsolved Mysteries YouTube page. You're welcome. Go watch it. Um, yeah, that's it. As we've just returned from a little hiatus, I want to take a quick minute to thank everyone who's left a review, a kind review for the podcast on Apple Podcast recently. Uh These are getting harder to do because to get these usernames to thank people, I have to go look at the reviews and some people are just mean. Mean? Um, 
latest problem is apparently the fact that I leave in when I mess up. That's just, it's how I talk. First of all, first of all, I take out a lot. I take out a lot of the missteps, misspeaks, misspoken words, all of that. But I do leave some of them in because that is just, if you've ever had a conversation with me in real life, that's how I am. And I I want real me to be who's coming to you through this microphone. So that's why they get left in. Um, But people don't like that apparently. So I've been getting a lot of bad reviews about leaving in my little bloopers, whatever. Fuck you. But I would like to wish a very not fuck you, a thank you, huge thank you to um, Care92706, Just Keep Swimming, Go for Gold. There's lots of O's and Go in Gold. So, and Christine29, Great Lakes Girl 3, and Taylor Fabus. And if you have Apple, Apple, <laughs> there comes another bad review. Watch out. Um, if you have Apple Podcasts, uh, and you haven't left a review for So Dead yet, and you want to say something nice, please go do so. And you will get a shout out on the podcast in the future. All right, liquid cheese. Um, Let's talk about the COVID of it all. So May 13th, Friday the 13th, there's the ominous right there, right? I've been, and, and I don't talk about the pandemic a lot in the show because I feel like, you know, Maybe not so much now, it's just a way of life. But in the beginning especially, we all needed an escape and and to not have to think about it constantly. Um, so I don't talk about it a ton, but what I have let out, I, I think you guys know that I've been very, very careful. Um, you know, my whole family is fully vaccinated, boosted. As soon as we're eligible for that second booster, we're going to get it. Uh, and we did, we all had some mild reactions to the vaccines, but nothing unmanageable. We, you know, masked when it was time to mask and we have avoided any sort, you know, we haven't flown anywhere. We haven't done anything where we would be in close quarters with a lot of people. Festival of Oddities aside, but that was primarily outdoors. Yeah, so we really haven't done anything risky this whole two and a half years. But... Motor City Comic Con came to Novi, which is in the Detroit area, in May, and the male cast of the Scream movies came. So Matthew Lillard, Ski Ulrich, and Jamie Kennedy all came to Motor City Comic Con. And there was just no way on God's green earth that I wasn't going because Like, I have a store named after their movie. Matthew Lillard is from Lansing. I've got some really great art of him up in the shop. Like, you can't have a store devoted to Scream and not go see the stars of Scream when they're an hour away from you. So I asked my kids if they wanted to go. They wanted to go. So May 13th, Friday the 13th, the three of us headed down to Novi, we went on Friday because Friday is the slowest day of the con. I mean, just a, still a lot of people, but a very small fraction of the people that were there on Saturday and even Sunday. So Matthew Lillard, objective number one. And he was just the most wonderful human being. So genuine. When he arrived, he walked through his whole... He had a longer line than anyone else there by a mile. Um, He walked through the entire line, high-fived every single person, uh, 
And I was pretty close up in the line because we got there early. So I was able to, you know, watch the dozen or so interactions that he had with other fans before it was my turn. And every time he met a little kid, he would do it in his shaggy voice from the Scooby-Doo movies. And it was the cutest thing in the world. He was just like so sweet, so friendly. He was right next to Skeet. And so they had opened the curtain between them and kept running back and forth and talking and joking. And you can tell that they're like really good friends in real life, which was super cool to see. And, you know, I got up there, I met him. Of course, I took them all stuff from the screamatorium, like like I wasn't going to do that. And then I also took Matthew some other stuff from just from home because he was born in Lansing. So I took him like some stuff from the Lansing clothing company and a local coffee company and all of that. So I get up there and I give him this bag and I was like, I brought you something. And he's like, you did? And I was like, well, I'm from Lansing. And he goes, I don't want it then. Joking. He was joking. But it was funny. He was sweet. Very sweet. Um, Skeet also like just super, super nice. So, so hot still. So, but uh, just very good looking. Very, like disarmingly good looking. But anyway, uh, Jamie Kennedy, very nice, very funny. And actually, so we went on Friday and the convention was also Saturday and Sunday. And on Sunday, people start sending me pictures and tagging me in posts because on Sunday, Jamie Kennedy wore his screamatorium t-shirt that I gave him. So that's what he's wearing in all of his like photo ops and all of that stuff on Sunday. So that was pretty cool. So uh, it was an exhausting day. I got some really great pictures. I got their autographs, really good stories. Um, while my kids did not wait in line to meet him, they did see, like, visibly lay eyes on William Shatner and their big Star Trek fans. So that was really cool for them. So super long day, but super great day. Came home, and I just, it's, you know, it's easy to say now that, like, I knew because it happened. I would have been worried about it had it even not happened, but I did. I just kind of felt it in my gut. I was like, we're going to we're gonna get sick. I just, I feel it. And that was Friday. And Sunday morning, I woke up with a sore throat and like my chest just felt all like gravelly and dry. And Monday morning, I woke up and I, and so I didn't go into the store. I stayed home and I rested and I kept trying to tell myself that like, it's, it's in your head. It's in your head. It's just all in your head. You're not sick. Uh, Monday morning, I woke up and my voice was completely gone. So Dax went and picked up COVID tests and we all took them and me and both of my boys had COVID. Like Friday was the con and by Monday we all had COVID. (laughs) It's not funny. It's not funny. Um, My husband never got it. Somehow my husband never got it. The few people that we were in close contact with in those couple days, nobody got it. So I feel good that we didn't pass it to anybody. For the most, you know, it's just, it was a weird thing. It was a really weird experience. And also strange, Danny had it at the same time. And Danny and I don't see each other super often. We still talk, but we don't see each other a ton. And so we hadn't seen each other in a long time. Um, She got it a couple days before I got it. So we had COVID together, which was weird. But but it, but it was good. It was nice to have someone to talk to who was kind of going through the same thing so we could talk about our symptoms and our fears and all of that. But it was just weird. You know, it's this thing that like I've been avoiding it so carefully for two and a half years. I've been so afraid and so worried about it. And okay, now it's here. So 
like not having to worry about getting COVID because I had COVID. That was a weird switch to make internally, but it's been nice. It's been nice to have that stress removed. For the most part, for me and the kids, it was just like a really bad head cold and we're really fortunate, Um, especially me. You know, I've got high risk factors. I do have diabetes and high blood pressure, go figure. And so I feel very fortunate that it was really just a super nasty head cold, except towards the end, um, you know, the exhaustion. The exhaustion was a huge thing. That took probably after my physical symptoms were pretty resolved. The exhaustion took another week or two to really get past. But this fucking COVID brain fog, it is so terrible. Um, I feel like my head is just floating above my body. Like my brain is just live nerve ends. I don't really know how to explain it. It's the strangest feeling. Like I cannot concentrate. I cannot focus. If the slightest like thing goes wrong, even if it's not a big deal, it just sends me into like this weird tailspin. Um, I, I don't feel like myself. I just feel very off and it's very frustrating. Some days I Today, thank God, I feel okay-ish, but, you know, researching and writing this episode, sitting down to do that for the first time since being sick was so much harder than than I anticipated, and that's why it took me so long to get this episode out to you guys. It just... I guess that's the easiest way to say it. I I still it's been it was May thirteenth. I'm re- when we were exposed. Um, May sixteenth when we tested positive. It's June twenty first as I'm recording this episode, and I still very much do not feel like myself, and it's very frustrating. So bear with me. My intention with the podcast is you know this episode's a week late, so technically another new episode is supposed to come out. You know this this coming next Tuesday. And my intention is for that to happen. I, I want to get everything back on track, back on schedule. So full episode this week, full episode next week, and then we'll get back into the full episode every other week and mini episode on the off weeks. It's my intention to stay on track at this point, but I also have to be gentle and kind with myself. And if I'm not doing well, there may be some delays here and there. And so I hope that you guys will stick with me, hang in there all of that. And stay safe. I know a lot of you have have had COVID and had your own experiences. A lot of you have had it more than once at this point, which like the thought of getting it again, no thank you. It's, It's not the sickest I've ever been, but it's the after. The after effects have been worse than any other time that I've been sick and I hate it. Hate it. But uh I mean, I guess at least we got it doing something cool, and now I've met almost the entire Screamcast. Just got to get Dewey and Gail Weathers in there, really. Okay, so upcoming, like I said, new episode next week. If you're not following me on TikTok, I'm trying to get back into it. I I really just like my whole life has been on pause, really, and it's frustrating. Uh, So TikTok is ScreamQueen517. Go follow me there. Things going on at Dead Time Stories. Um, July 2nd is the birthday of Keith Morrison. And if you've been to the store, you all know how much we love Keith Morrison. In fact, 
We just adopted a shop cat. I'll talk about him next week. And uh, his name is Morrison after granddaddy Keith. So July 2nd, it's a Saturday. It is his 75th birthday and we're having a birthday party for him at Dead Time Stories. Is he going to be there? Of course not. Would we love for him to come? Of course we would. But I, I think that Keith Morrison has better places to be on his 71th, 71st, 75th birthday than in my store. So come out on July 2nd. We'll have some sales on books that feature cases that he's covered. We'll have some special Keith merch. We'll have like probably cupcakes. I haven't decided. Some kind of dessert aspect going on. So yeah. Anyway, new episode, another one coming next week since this one's so late. And until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.